This is the Western Obsessions TV podcast, where hunting's not a hobby, it's an obsession. All right, guys, welcome back to the Western Obsessions TV podcast. On this episode, I got a pretty cool guest here I'm pretty excited about. Uh, this guest has been in the industry for a while, for a long time, He's done some really cool things in the industry from working with brands like Yeti, uh, the outdoors, outdoorsman, sportsman's group, meat eater, a lot of cool brands. Uh, he has now founded Woodside Media, the Woodside podcast, and something super cool we're going to talk about, which is the Hunt and Common nonprofit. My guest is Ben O'Brien. Ben, thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate you. Man, that's one hell of an introduction. I said, thanks. It's, yeah, hey. saves me a lot of work saying who I am. <laughs> I, I like it, dude. Thank you. Well, if I missed anything, man, fill in the gaps, man. What do you want to say about who you are? <laughs> oh man, you know, um, that is a lot of it. I, I was I've been talking a lot about um been in some other podcasts and just kind of talking about how I got in the industry. And I got in when I was 22. Uh, I've been hunting since I was 12, probably old enough for my dad to uh, to take me. And I got in the industry when I was 22. So I've kind of grown up in the hunting space for good and for bad. So a lot of people that have known me for that long have probably seen me grow up um, in the hunting space, in the, in the community, in the industry at large, whatever it might be. So I'm not, I'm only 36. Uh, but man, I've been, been doing it for, it'll be 15 years coming up here. So um, yeah. Yeah, feel it's kind of a weird dynamic to have have gone through your early, mid, late twenties, early thirties, become a father. All of it and all those experiences you mentioned as companies and brands and things that I've done have come over uh, you know, the my the twenties and early thirties in my life. So it's been it's been cool to track uh my own life within within the hunting space. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. You've been into this. I don't know if you've been in the, this only this space, but let's back up a little bit. I love finding out sure. how people get into hunting in general. So I, I heard you mention your dad. Is that the case with you? Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, my dad's actually flying in this evening. I'm going to go pick him up from the airport. We're going to take my six-year-old son uh, on his kind of his first overnight hunt. He's been on a lot nice. of hunts with me, but his first overnight hunt, we're going to go uh, tag a couple of antelope in Wyoming. And uh, yeah, my dad's getting ready to turn 70 and he started me hunting when I was, I want to say I was 10 and then you had to be 12. I were from Maryland originally. So at that time you had to be 12 to hunt. And so as soon as I was 12, I was out there. Um, and that mm -hmm. really, you just, and I, I see this in my own son now, really my only interest early on was following my dad. I mean, they're like, if he would have been a golfer, I probably would have tried. I would have sucked really bad at that. Um, <laughs> not to say I'm good at hunting, but I, you know, I just wanted to follow him. I just remember this, this kind of larger than life figure and, and he and his friends became my friends. I regularly hunted with uh, three or four guys that were all over 50 and hung out with them. And, and that was just my crew. And that was who, how it was. And I really enjoyed that coming up and we didn't, it was never, certainly never any trophies involved. Um, there is a couple of times where I thought we got a trophy and I look back at those antlers now and I lie and I chuckle. I mean, <laughs> just like a basket rack eight point was a trophy yeah. for us. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I was really just tracked by my dad, my dad um, and his friends. We, we had a neighbor named Bill Miller and, and um, 
he was a, a mentor of mine. He was my dad's age and kind of, you know, filled in the gaps where my dad wasn't there or working or whatever it might've been, but my dad really was there um, most of the time. And, and we had an amazing uh, experience growing up hunting deer and we shot, I shot one of my first deer with a Hawken 50 cal muzzleloader. So I remember oh, passion cool. round ball in their early days. Yeah. Just kind of yeah. so much of that. Uh, I remember the first time he let me sit by myself, but he was like 50 yards over the hill where I couldn't see him. Uh, and so <laughs> I remember all that stuff, man. Yeah. So I, it really, my story really is just, is just his story. And now to have him come and be a part of my son's stories is, um, pretty beautiful along the way. Yeah. So it's three generations going on on this antelope hunt then. And this is your son's first time. That's right. He, yeah. I mean, he's, it's his first time we first discussed overnight. last night. Yeah. We, we discussed last night. He's seen, he's a hell of a pheasant grouse plucker. I mean, he's like a machine <laughs> and he does it really good. He's very, he's very meticulous about plucking. Mm. So he, he understands he's helped me butcher just about every animal I've killed since he was old enough to be there and understand it. He certainly has helped me you know, do European mounts in the backyard. I mean, he's like, so he understands it, but I did ask him last night. I said, listen, you're going to see something die. Like we're going to kill something. You know what it's like to eat it and butcher it and see the process from meat to, you know, plate. Uh, but you'd never seen this other thing. Right. And I was like, are you, are you ready for that? Do you want to talk about it? Like it's, it's, it's going to happen. And uh, he said, no, I'm good. <laughs> he's like, I, he's like, I, you know, I, he's like, I can't wait to have some. <laughs> that was his, <laughs> was, his, was his response. So yeah, this is really his first time um, being there for kind of a big game kill and, and being, you know, I remember my first time seeing my dad gut a deer. That was interesting. <laughs> so he's going to get that this weekend. The smell of gutting that deer. I know. And that's, that's really cool. You had that talk with him because you don't know how someone's going to react for the first time they see something die. And it, it could go either way. Like I, I mean, this sounds bad, but I loved it. I, you know, I, I mean, it was like very exciting for me. We, you know, see going out hunting for me the first time with my, my dad and my mom, but my sister was completely opposite. She went out and she absolutely hated it and never wanted to go back. So that's really cool. You had that talk with them early on. Yeah. Yeah. That was very cool. Yeah. I mean, he, he's a nonchalant kid anyway. I mean, he's not really, uh, he just kind of, takes everything in stride it seems these days even as a six-year-old um which is amazing but yeah i i think i introduced him to fishing i think when he was about two or three and when we were you know catching bluegills and he was reeling them in and every single one he wanted to keep every single yeah. one he wanted to flay and, and make fish sticks out of um, <laughs> so we did that for years man we like years and years we'd go and catch you know a bucket full of bluegills and sunnies and we'd go back and fillet them and and he'd cook them up and yeah fry them up and he'd love it and so he, he got that from the beginning. I think all kids really do, though. I mean, most kids, if you ask them outside of the context of anything else, just like, do you want to keep this fish or throw it back? I think most kids say, I'm trying to keep it, man. I just caught this thing. thing. Yeah. I throw it back. <laughs> I, I came here for it. I didn't want to throw it back. So he, he was like that from the beginning. And then I just kind of really intentionally made sure he understood what was on his plate and that he had worked a little bit you know, he'd help me make the burger, help me make the sausage or help me, you know, um, or stand there while I, you know, cut steaks or whatever it was going to be. Uh, and then he, you know, we go, we, we pick huckleberries and raspberries and thimbleberries every year. We pick morels every year. We, you know, so he, he gets it. Um, he yeah. gets it from, 
a level that I never probably did at that at that age. So we'll see. I'm, I'm hoping that that translates to, you know, kids do science experiments in school where they dissect things and there's guts and things involved. So it's hopefully maybe that was for you too, like just this learning thing of like, what does it, oh, yeah. what is this like? And this is interest. It's not, it doesn't make, it's not gross. It's just a, it's kind of like a science experiment Yeah. at some level for them. Um, and so I'm excited. I have no idea what's going to happen Been looking forward to this for, for a long time. We would, we tried to do it last year, but kind of COVID got in the way and, uh, mm -hmm. There was too many people applying for analog tags out there in Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> so, there, uh, yeah, there has been a pretty good increase of uh, new hunters coming into it, which is great. I mean, we can get to go down that, that we'll go down that maybe here in a little bit. But uh, so, all right, at six years old, obviously he's not old enough to pull trigger yet. So it must be you or your dad's tag. Is that right? Yeah, we got two tags. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we'll hopefully kill a couple of bucks and we're going to hunt on my buddy's place. I've got a, a public land or, well, I got a Montana tag where we'll hunt public land and then a couple of uh, tags to, to hunt my buddy's ranch down in Wyoming. And so we have plenty of opportunities and, you know, we're going to be sleeping in tents and rolling around. Luckily the weather's going to be pretty good. So uh, won't be any real challenges there, which yeah. around here, as you well know, <laughs> you, you never really know. This is the time of year where it could either be negative five or 60. So uh, <laughs> yeah. like we're going to get the high end of that thing. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're going to really, uh, you know, and my son also has stayed during elk season this year, stayed, uh, a couple of different cabins with me while I was hunting and just hung out and, and been a part of that. He can blow the hell of a hell out of an elk call. <laughs> Their little vocal cords can just right? make those high pitched sounds. Yeah. Um, and you know, he has a little bow that he shoots and stuff like that. So, um, you know, my, in my own family, I, I really got into hunting. My brother has never done it. You know, so um, huh. I have a, a two, I have a two year old and and six year old, so I don't know if that's going to happen with me too. But um, there's so many stories of that where it doesn't it doesn't always carry over. Right. So you have a two year old, your six year old, bring the six year olds out on his first overnight hunt, which is that's super cool. Uh, and your brother doesn't hunt, so is it just you, you and a brother? Do you have any other siblings? No, just me and a brother. He's an old, uh, yeah. older brother by about a year and a half, and and I I would say when I was. I have one story that I don't know if he'll like me telling or not, but I'm telling Let's do it. do it. He's my older brother. He picked on me for years. I got to do something <laughs> to get back at him. Uh, he, um, there's one, one, when I knew we were different and this probably wasn't going to be a thing that he did. I was maybe, I would say I was probably 18. And my dad, we would always, we had this tradition on, on the week, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, we would go out for the rifle opener in, in Maryland. My dad had um, heart, like a heart issue, had heart surgery weeks before. And the doctor was like, no, you can't go. And we had already scouted this spot out. We had already built a little blind. Like we kind of knew what we were going to do. It's this cool public land spot in Maryland. We were going to hike in in the morning and cross some creeks. And we had all our boots stashed and things. Were, it, was, it was this kind of ornate plan that we had. And he couldn't go. And he said, you should go. You're, you're all, like, go, man. You can do it. Uh, so, okay. So I got up, at, it was an hour drive and a two hour hike in. So I got up at like three in the morning. I go to the gas station right by our house and I'm pumping gas and I look over and there's my brother. <laughs> it's like, he hadn't gone to sleep yet. And he's <laughs> coming back from what essentially was a, 
one that he didn't start, mind you, a bar fight that he didn't start, <laughs> that he got, <laughs> that he helped to finish. Uh, oh, so he's like runs across the parking lot. He's like, oh, you won't guess what happened, man. All, all of our mutual friends are there. They're just, you know, they're in party mode. Yeah. Like they're 19. You know, yeah. that's what they're doing. Um, so I realized like, I'm a little bit, I'm by myself. I'm about to drive into the woods and go alone. And here is all my friends and my brother out, you know, living the 19 year old you know, <laughs> life. And I just knew at that point, I'm like, this is different. Like it's just, I'm different. I don't care about that. I did a lot mm -hmm. of plenty of, of that kind of stuff in my day, but I just, it just wasn't as compelling to me. I didn't care. I wanted to go to the woods and that's what I wanted to do. And he just never did. And that stuck throughout throughout his life and mine. Um, he certainly appreciates what I do and loves to talk about it. Certainly love to have uh, stakes when he comes over, but um, <laughs> this is not, it's, it's never something that stuck with him. Right. He'll eat the food, but he's not about to go out and, and harvest it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's it. And yeah. his, you know, he lives in a different world, you know, so it's, yeah. uh, it's never really been a thing between us in terms of like, it's, it's, it's certainly, we haven't done it together, but it certainly hasn't, you know, been an opposition out us having a great relationship, but it's right. just, it's, it's funny how, you know, some people pick it up. Some people don't, whether it's a, whether it's just situational where you just didn't get introduced the right way, or, you know, it's just not something that's, that's a part of who you are, you know, mm -hmm. or it's because it takes a lot to hunt, as you well know, like, it's not a small endeavor. It's not a thing you do once every, every oh, year. Yeah. I mean, it's something you end up, you end up a lot of time, a lot of money. Oh, <laughs> go oh, into yeah. It. <laughs> oh yeah. So yeah. growing up whitetail hunting, how'd you get into the, uh, the Western side of things? Oh, man. I'm so thankful I did. Um, yeah, I, I remember my first job out of, out of school was at the NRA. And um, at that time, I just whitetail hunted. And all my friends whitetail hunted, and that's kind of what it was. So I was going to be, I always wanted to be like the next Bill Winky. I remember. Oh, sure. Really wanted to be Bill Winky. And I got to meet and hang out with Bill later on in my career, which I thought was the coolest thing ever. Cool. But I did want to be kind of a whitetail guy. Because I figured at that time, everybody you know, 10, 12 years ago, and still to this day, people have, you have like a lane that you pick, right? You're a whitetail guy or whatever. So I was going to be a whitetail guy. Uh, I even had a whitetail blog early on at American Hunter. A blog seems like a weird thing to say these days. Uh, right? They're still out there. And they're still, there's still people on their blog and they're like, no, I'm not tweeting, blogging. <laughs> and you know, so I, I really, and I love white. I still do, man. Being up in a tree at dawn and like hearing the leaves crashing and, and having a buck come like, that's just to me, every time I get to do it now, I just, I, I miss it so much and try to do it every year. Um, but really it was public lands, man. Like I, the idea of public lands was what drew me to it because I grew up in Maryland where there was some scant public lands here, there, some state forests that were small tracks that you could hunt some larger tracks. When I was growing up, you couldn't hunt on Sundays. You know, there was all these kind of like weird rules and, and restrictions around hunting. Uh, it was hard to waterfowl hunt unless you had access somewhere. And then, so I moved to a couple different states. I moved to Illinois for a job, Peterson's Hunting Magazine, and then down to Texas for Yeti. And then moving around to those places, I realized, holy crap, having access to the game that you want that you can hunt anytime that you want mm -hmm. is what I need. I want it for my kids. I want it for myself. 
And then I got through the industry and just through my own efforts in hunting, I got to go hunt out West a ton and killed an elk a year, every year for five years, living in Texas or something, whatever, I, whatever it was, an elk a year, every year I lived in Texas, I killed an elk in the Western States somewhere, Utah, Colorado, Montana. And so I just fell in love with it, man. I just fell in love with this idea that there was this, this vast place where you could just go do whatever you want within the bounds of, of our laws and regulations. And, mm -hmm. and it just felt different than, than having small tracts of land or fighting for access or, yeah. you know, things I saw in Illinois, like, you know, the, the duck blind raffle where you go stand in a park lot and drink beer with a bunch of guys and you get the, then they raffle off like a chance to sit in a duck blind and, and hopefully not get shot by somebody else. Like it. <laughs> <laughs> and in yeah. Texas, it was all about who you knew. Right. Like, yeah. And so that's what drew me to it. Um, and also elk obviously drew me to it as well. But now that I live in Montana, you know, I spend, man, I, spend, I just got off a two day, uh, bird hunt where we just freaking hiked our butts off and you know saw a bunch of amazing country and i don't know i must have hunted elk probably 15 days in september this year um and so i'm getting ready to go do more of it so i can't i can't imagine it any other way and i'm not leaving unless they kick me out <laughs> i feel the same way here in colorado i grew up in the midwest grew up in nebraska whitetail hunting you know pheasant turkey yeah. and it was pretty easy to get access i'm a little bit older than you i'm it's a, it was easy to get access when I was younger with some farmers or just wanted all the deer to be dead because they're eating their corn. Right. But as the hunting industry became more of a money game that changed a lot. And then it was really hard to get access and there was not a lot of public land. So as I moved to Colorado, man, I just love the adventure of, man, I could just get out there on top of a mountain. And it was just the, the adventure of all that public land just was very appealing to me too. Yeah, it was kind of like to me, it was walking through this door and realizing, oh, like I've never seen the movie about Narnia, but I think they walk through a door and there's this whole other world. Yeah, it's kind of how it felt to me. <laughs> like there was this, I walked through this door, and I was like, oh my gosh, look, not only is it, I think the first layer of it is the opportunity, the idea that you can, um, especially in Montana, um, there's so many species, there's so much, the, the season is so long, there's so many things you can do so many places you can go it i mean it's endless that's part of the challenge in fact is that right. there is so much opportunity right and that just felt so that's like the first layer for me that opportunity but then i started to then think about well how do we maintain this how like what's the structure that maintains this mm. what are the things that threaten it like what are what can i do what can i learn who can i talk to to be better at stewarding this like what are the you know what don't i already know who can, you know, who can I, what's this a model of conservation that we have? What's this, you know, really drove me, public lands was kind of like the thing that drove me to learn more about our, our American system of conservation funding, about things like Pittman-Robertson, um, yep. you know, about endangered species activists. It's like the history of how we got to where we are. And I remember really, there was a, there was a moment when I realized that I didn't know enough. Like I didn't, hadn't done the work to be a representative for hunting once I realized how much I needed it and how much it was just a part of who I was, you know, hunting on public lands and having people ask me questions about like, well, what, okay, how's the system of public lands work? I was like, well, I, I think you just buy a license and go. <laughs> but <laughs> so I was, I really forced myself then knowing that this was an important thing to me to learn more about it. And it's just like, there's such, 
like we do, we are in a moment now that is so incredibly special and cool. And I think about it as just like an East Coast kid that came out West. When I get a moment to reflect when I'm in the elk woods, when they quit bugling and they quit talking to me and sit, reflect on like, this is what I'm doing is such a unique thing, not only among the American population, but among the world and the system that I'm paying into this, this public land system I'm a part of, man, it's, it's a privilege to be in this, particularly this moment in time, generationally. Um, you know, my, my dad, here's my dad's going to comes out West two, three, four times a year to, to experience what I'm experiencing. So I brought him along in that. Um, so I'm very appreciative of it, but that only started by, you know, discovering it, walking through that door and realizing there's a whole world to that personally I'm passionate about, but then it, then it was like, oh man, intellectually, there's a structure around it. There's a system that supports it. There's a value system that's, that's intertwined and, and woven into it. And that even made me more passionate that it feels right on a personal level, but on an intellectual level, I can take it now, break it down and explain it to anybody that wants to know, right. You know, what, it, what it is just from a practical standpoint. Well, maybe we get into that at this point. I know, you know, a lot of listeners might not understand the conservation side of it and why we have public sure. lands and how we keep public lands public. And um, which is, Another topic I wanted to get into is the, it seems like there, uh, there's a quite a bit of an influx of hunting, new hunters over the last mm -hmm. couple of years, which is amazing for us raising capital to continue to have public land, yeah. but also sucks if they're in my spot. <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh, Everybody, let me just say this, man. I feel like everybody that comes, like that gets to their to the trailhead and pulls up to their spot and there's a truck there, you immediately hate that person. Oh, like that, I think it's just like human nature because <laughs> you have worked hard, you have this intellectual property you think is yours and somebody else snaked you. So I think like, <laughs> I've always been honest, like the, your first emotion, most people, not all, but most people, their first emotion, damn it. Yeah. That bastard. Yeah. And I think that's, that's okay. Like that's kind of, that's fairly normal. Um, and, and it is, you know, it's something that we, it's a paradox, man. It is, is like the definition of, of this paradoxical world we live in where we, I'm an evangelist for hunting. I love it. I want to promote it the right, in the right way. But I also realize that that comes at a cost to the resource, possibly to me personally, but also to the, the community that I roll in. And I'll tell you that I've called in, I called in a, a dude the other day on public lands, called, he called back, he came over the hill. I'm like, oh, there's a dude kept calling. He came the rest of the way. And he's like, Hey, Ben O'Brien. I was like, damn it. <laughs> I was like, damn it. Damn it. <laughs> damn it. Uh, I'm, I hate myself. Uh, it's so that like it, it, yeah. I mean, it's a paradox. It just is. And, yeah. and for anybody, the thing that I don't like, the thing that bothers me about it is like if we could all admit it's very complicated like these these things are incredibly complicated the history is complicated the politics the ideology is all very complicated it frustrates me when somebody tries to simplify it you know based on one narrative or the other like don't talk about it only talk about it in this way you know it's, it's just not simple um it's it just really takes a commitment over a long the longest term to figure it out because not everybody can hunt we don't have the resources for that land Right. Uh, wildlife we just don't have it but we do we should all agree that we want the greater society to, to think it's a good thing because i think right. ultimately that's the question 
that society is asking us. The non-hunting public, which is 90% of the people that live in this country, there's probably 5% that hunt, 5%, I'm making these numbers up, but in general, it's probably true, 5% that hate it and want it to go away, 5% that love it and understand it, and then 80% that, 80 or 90% that, that just have this singular question in their minds is, like, is it good for society and why are you doing it? Like, right. why are you killing things? Right. Um, and so that to me, is like, that's when you dive into that, you just realize it's, it's complex. There's some oxymoronic notions built into it, killing things because you love them. All <laughs> these, all these things that are, it's very easy to explain an anti-hunter's perspective and yeah. very complex to explain a hunter's perspective. And that's, that's yeah. to our detriment, um, which is, which has been why I really wanted to learn as much as I could so I could articulate those things in a way that was that one made sense to me um, so I didn't feel like a hypocrite but just made sense to other people right and how what would you say to explain that to a non-hunter maybe they're you know maybe not a non-hunter that's yeah. that's coming at you with some hate but just wants to understand what it's about yeah um I even I've I've the way that I've tried to approach that um I had a, we did a podcast called Hunter and Vegan. I got a, a buddy of mine, his name's Robert C. Jones. He's a um, animal rights ethicist at Chico State University. Also a vegan. Oh boy. Oh boy. Uh, but, oh yeah. <laughs> I got to oh, yeah. listen to that of course. one for sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's cool, man. Because like, I'm friends with the guy. I like him. Like when we hang out, I have a good time. He wears scarves and like pointy toed shoes and stuff. <laughs> he doesn't wear like Schnee's boots. Or first light or sitka <laughs> he doesn't know what that stuff even is um but we hang out like we have a great time and the pur purpose of our podcast was to take our disagreement and break it down into chapters and ask questions like is killing moral can mm -hmm. killing be moral right like it, our animals it, the sentience matter um some of the things that, that that he pushes on he's a philosopher too so he asked me all these philosophical questions and sure. tries to get me tries to, <laughs> to, to stop it's but it's fun and and i look at it as fun if he gets his way i never get to hunt again if i get if i get my way he's going with me next week when i go to antelope camp Heck yeah but we're probably never going to get either one of those things mm -hmm. um but he has made me such a better hunter and also a better like articulator of if that's even a word better able to articulate what I think hunting is and what it should be. And so I, when I articulate it to him, um, I think it comes down to, there's a core idea and man, it's, it's very leveled. Um, but when, when I talk to non-hunters, I say, look, let me be honest with you. I'm an evangelist for hunting. Um, and for a few reasons, one, a personal level, it's a huge part of my life. Like it feeds me, it keeps me physically and mentally healthy. It gives me a craft to hone. Um, it gives me a set of uh, skills and understandings I wouldn't have otherwise. It connects me to my humanity. It allows me to, to really understand my place in an ecosystem, my place in the natural world. It, it educates me in a way and drives me to be, you know, really a full participant in nature. Um, and to understand there's this idea of tragic knowledge that's a philosophical idea that to understand death, you have to take part in death. Um, mm -hmm. And we're all scared to talk about death. We're all scared, especially in the natural world. We, like we have proxy executioners going out to kill our food for us. Right. And not only do they do that, 
but then they package it up and sell it to us in like the the most simplistic way ever you know they don't they that's why i connect with vegans more than non-hunters probably because at least the vegans are trying to figure it out sure like they're taking a different tact i don't necessarily agree with their tact but at least they're trying to do the same things which is like break down our food systems and see where that system is not set up to benefit us. It's set up to profit off us and not benefit us. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can talk about those things forever, but I recently had just been talking to people about how, if you have a problem in your life, I bet I can help you solve it through hunting. And I'm not being, that sounds like I've got, that sounds like an incredible amount of hubris. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So I put that out on the table to be like, man, like I, I, I put that out on the table as like, I know that kind of sounds like um, uh, a bit of a douche, but I, I can tell you from personal experience, if you're struggling with like modern technology, if you're addicted to your phone, if you're addicted to TV, if you spend your nights binge watching Netflix shows, which I often do, uh, if, if you're physically really unable to engage in something, like you just don't like to work out or you don't like to run just to run, um, there's, there's many things within hunting that'll push you physically. If you feel disconnected from the people around you, if you don't have good connections, if you are watching a sports game and you feel like, man, this is kind of meaningless. Like I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for something that doesn't have any real meaning. It has cultural significance, but it doesn't have personal meaning. You're not playing in the game. You know, if you, if you don't have a, a, a skill in your life that you're crafting, like if you don't go out to the garage every night and, and make a, you know, do some woodworking or garden or whatever that might be. If you feel disconnected from your food and your food is making you unhealthy, this is a a way to solve that problem. Uh, If you feel disconnected from your children or your spouse, or if you, if you don't, if the modern world and all of its ills are, are getting you down, man, I think hunting can be the thing. It doesn't have to be. There's other things that I think can solve those problems. But I've seen through through some of the media I've done and just just hearing from people and then also our nonprofit, which I know we're going to get into that there are hunting is a force you're really for good on a personal level, you know, get get away from the structure of of how how it works within our governmental system and all the other things that we've set up, which I think is also good. But like on a personal level, I think it just if you do it the right way and if you if you step into it. Yeah. Uh, in the right way you'll you'll find that it it solves so many things um i mean we have such an issue i have young kids i worry about their mental health all the time oh yeah i really do have um, you read every time or i heard see somebody of, have ahead. you read or heard of the book the comfort crisis oh yeah yeah i i definitely i've read that yeah. book i was reading yeah. i read it last year in elk camp actually <laughs> was yeah. in my tent. Yeah. i think that's that hits the nail on the head. I think that's kind of what you're talking about a little bit. There is we're so comfortable as society and we're not challenged. Our, obviously our food is not the best either, but you know, just getting outdoors out in nature's exact healing properties in itself. And then challenge yourself, like going on an elk hunt is probably like the best Masogi, you know, that if you <laughs> yeah. remember the Masogi thing, right. I Where do it's, remember it. Yeah. yeah. It's something super hard outdoors. Like 10% of elk hunters are archery hunters, maybe, uh, harvest an elk, but super challenging, yeah. super physically challenging mentally and outdoors, man. So I'm with you on that. I, I kind of like what you're saying there, man. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, 
you know, when I look at it on a broader scale, I mean, I just, I think like you, if you, if you really allow yourself to open up to some of the things that I'm saying and, and look at hunting that way, you're going to get to a point where you're like, well, um, I'm going to, I'm going to understand my humanity a little bit better, understand my place in the world, have a sense of purpose. Yeah. Um, you go back. I always talk about sharpening the life knife. <laughs> like you go back. Oh I remember like, you know, like you go into a situation in the wilderness where you don't have society's comforts, right? You think that when you would, when you go back to society, you'd be like, ah, a hamburger or ah, a couch. My experience with it has been like when I go on like a two week long and I've done a couple of these where it's like you fly on a plane, you know, Northwest territory, you fly on a plane and another plane, another plane, another plane. Then you sit at an old dingy hotel and yellow knife for four or five days. And then you <laughs> go out and you spend 10 days in the wilderness and you come back. You, because you had to hike down from camp to go get water every time you were thirsty or every time you needed to refill um, your container, you get back to the world and your perspective is like a little bit of traffic, no big deal. Sure. You know, you appreciate those comforts in a way that does, that adds to your understanding of what you said, what comfort is and, and, and like why it's not necessarily always a good thing. Um, it quite often is always a negative thing. And so that's baked into the, what I'm talking about as well. So some of the newer hunters come at it from food first and then they discover these things. Yeah. And I tell people, you're not going to discover them. It's not like stepping under a waterfall. Like you're not going to discover it all at once. Be like, ah, look at all this stuff I just discovered. You got to commit to it. And it comes in waves. Like you may, if you're a new hunter, you've never done it before. The first thing you might discover is that food seems a little bit different now. I appreciate this. And I'm, I'm telling the story of my food to everybody that's at the table. And I'm telling them like, Hey man, like this, this grouse flew off the ground. And I shot it. We had to go down with the dog and find it. You're telling the story of your food all of a sudden. And maybe that's the first thing you discover. And then maybe the next thing you discover is, is you don't want to sit on the couch anymore and watch TV. Like that's not compelling to you. Um, Cause the game of hunting, I think this is an important point too. The game of hunting, and it is a game because we could all not play it and just go to the grocery store. Like we're, we don't need to do it, but it becomes this immersive, like three-dimensional game of, you know, of skill and, and like taking on, to take on an elk with a bow, to call it in, to learn to speak its language, to call it in. I mean, it's like, that's the most immersive thing I've ever done in nature. Oh yeah. Same thing with turkeys um, yeah. or anything else. And so it just becomes this thing that I've become real passionate about these ideas because I've experienced them myself and my family members that have. And then I've just seen so many people from different walks of life take to it um, in a way where I'm like, man, it's, maybe these things aren't infallible. There's many imperfect things about what I'm saying, but I've seen it so much that I'm really confident that I think given the right opportunities, people can, uh, you know, it can change their lives. And I, the comfort crisis, like who, you know, Donnie Vincent is insane. Yeah. By by the by, I know Donnie pretty pretty well. He's in, he does insane things. You know, he what I'm talking about, he does on a regular basis. Like ah, 21 days in Alaska, right, or whatever it might be, right. Um, and so I can't remember the author. What was the author of the Comfort Crisis? Um, oh, shoot, I don't remember either. But I remember it was but, uh, about going on a hunt with Donnie. Um, yeah, and yeah, hey, Donnie's Donnie's uh, 
insane backcountry hunter. Like he's, he's a biologist and lived in the back, like and studied wolves and done all these things. Um, and so that, that's also, that's also where hunting kind of reveals a lot about who you are, like what kind what type of hunting we, we did a, an elk hunting podcast here recently. We were talking about the levels of elk hunting, like the levels of the craft of elk hunting. Right. The first level is like, first level is like saw an elk. That was cool. <laughs> that was cool. <laughs> so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> like they exist. Yeah. And then the next level might be for depending on how you track these things. Like if that might be getting close enough to knock an arrow, you know, oh, I, one responded to me when I, when I bugled, that might be the second level. The third level might be, you know, I'm going to go and draw my bow and, and maybe get a shot and miss, or I'm going to interact with an elk in a way that I might've killed it. And the fourth one is I killed one. Right. The fifth one is the fifth level of elk hunting might be, I killed one two years in a row. Um, and the sixth level might be, I can take what I've learned over this, these first five or six levels and go to any state and apply, go to any state that has elk mm-hmm. and look at a map, find elk, call them in and, and repeat that success. And then you're kind of into the expert level. You know, if, it, if this was a video game, you're, you're kind mm-hmm. of into the expert level. You now have that this those skills and so it does translate to game theory it translates to these things where people want conflict they want they want to challenge themselves to succeed and go up and up and up and um hunting has these like insane like the variability of those levels is insane and once you become an expert then you can bring other people along and take them through yeah. those levels yeah and the great thing about the west is that once you feel like you're i got uh, friends that have uh, that are just playing around now with elk. They're like, I'll see if I can kill one this year with a longbow. And then I'll right. see if I can call one in. I'm only going to kill one if it's 350 plus. Um, and those guys, <laughs> they're experts. Um, and so th- those levels, I think, are, are, are very personally enticing for me because it's, it's endless. Um, as soon as you think that you have it, don't have it. Um, right. You know, so it's... Right that's a thing that, that brings, keeps me coming back beyond what I feel like are the parallel, parallel benefits of food and conservation and things like that. Yeah. For me, a big part of it is the simplicity of you're out in nature. You're only really worried about a handful of things. You have one big goal in mind. You're after that harvest, you know, that's your goal, but that's 10% of what you're really doing. And it's all right. Where do I get my next source of water from? How's my food source? Do I have shelter? What's the weather like? And that's the only thing that you're thinking about. And that's very pleasurable for me. When I get back into the real world, I'm like, you know, a day into it, God, how did I get so busy and so much stress so damn fast? (laughs) You know, (laughs) that's what really I enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. That's another, yeah. Another big part of it. You know, I, I remember a couple of trips I've done that are a bit longer or I'd, I'd like, I would hold off turning my phone back on for like, I'd be on the plane looking at it, like <laughs> shaking, like, oh, I don't oh, want shit. Oh my gosh. I know when, when I turn you on, I know that the whole world now has access to me. And that's the other part of the kind of like what hunting helps you realize it doesn't solve the, our addiction to technology, but it gives you perspective in, in, in your own experience. Like mm-hmm. I, we have existed as a species for millions of years without ha- without everybody in the world having access to you at all the, at all times. Oh yeah, and and that's a big stress I think on on most modern 
men and women, doesn't matter who you are. Um, so at least you get perspective. You're not all of a sudden going to, unless you're going to go like on Walden Pond and just live in the woods and, and, uh, I've thought and change everything. <laughs> so I think about it every day. Um, every time somebody pulls out in front of me in traffic, I'm like, I know there's a cabin somewhere where that would never happen. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I just, it's when you start talking to non hunters about it, it, it's just, and I think they can see it that, that it's, it's, it's more, it's just more, it's more than food. It's more than killing. It's more than any one component. And you, if you're able to meet them on an intellectual level and say, like, if I was to strip away the personal benefits, which would be hard to do, but if I could do that, then I would have to look at it from a structural standpoint, from a societal standpoint, for the broad context of what it's done, um, you know, as a mechanism for wildlife and wild lands, like as, as that, as just on an intellectual level, you can understand it. I can explain to you these things. I, I would explain things like the public trust doctrine which means that the wildlife agencies via the states hold wildlife in, in trust for the people. We own the wildlife. If the wildlife is on your land. You don't own it. You're holding it in trust for the people. That's, that's a very democratic idea. Everyone should be able to understand that. And everybody should, should know that we came from, this country was formed around this idea that the aristocracy uh, is what we were running away from. And in England and in a lot of places, there's still this kind of underlying thought that hunting is for the aristocracy. Like right. you have an estate, it has game, and the people that get to hunt it are the privileged few. Yep. Um, we don't have that here. We have this very democratic idea of the public trust. And, we, and then what we solved, you know, in 1936, President Franklin Roosevelt said, you know, let's, let's get a bunch of people together. It's the first National Wildlife Conference, 2000. Uh, folks showed up to it and they and it formed our like really formed our american system of conservation funding which is a more modern term that we use but it basically said we're killing all this wildlife we've we've extirpated so many species we have to reinvent how to value wildlife in this country not only do we reinvent that value we have to reinvent how we intertwine commerce and you know all the things that matter to you know economical value how do we do that for wildlife they came up with a, a piece of legislation that was called pittman robertson um, at that time it was taking existing excise taxes and taking they were 11 percent excise taxes and applying those um, to wildlife to go back to state wildlife management and that is it was the wildlife restoration act it was passed in 90 days they had this big conference. And I think something that a lot of people don't understand about Pittman-Robertson, I've heard this said and said incorrectly, is that that initial wildlife conference had bird watchers, it had garden clubs. I've looked at like the, the flyers for that wildlife conference they put out in huh. DC. You can go find them. And there's like the flyers are like a, a, a gathering of people that care about wildlife, a gathering of national stakeholders that care about wildlife. In 1936, you're talking about the Great Depression. Oh, yeah. So we had an enlightenment around wildlife during a time where people were struggling to live. I can't even imagine what it must have been like. And so like that, there's moments like that, that, that through hunting, like I, I went back just to know. I just wanted to know um, and know it well. And that's, that's part of our history. And then that, you know, that piece of legislation turned into 
you know, those excise taxes and that piece of legislation turned into things like Dingle Johnson, which does the same for fishing tackle. Uh, people don't understand that that as you can tell i could talk about this forever man but it's good <laughs> man it's good stuff man so, yeah, it needs to be talked yeah about. so it, what a lot of people don't understand about our, our system of conservation funding is that the manufacturer of the goods essentially pays the excise tax you know and so when you go buy a bow you don't if you look at your receipt i'm pretty sure you don't see that excise tax there yeah, so they so, so the manufacturer is paying that excise tax on the cost of the manufactured goods. So it's this, this idea goes back to another core, like we talked about public trust doctrine. The other core of this is an idea called user pays public benefits. And that's exactly, that's the core of our system of conservation funding is that we pay. So the public benefits, this includes the duck stamp, right? So you've, Hunters pay uh, a certain amount each year that goes into a duck stamp, but that money goes all back into wildlife refuges that the public gets to use. A lot of people don't know that the duck stamp is a ticket into any wildlife refuge. If you have a duck stamp, it gets you entry into any pay, paid entry into wildlife refuges across this country. Um, and so there was, there, there's a bunch of legislation that was passed after that um, to help protect this idea of, of user pays public benefits. Right. And so we have this system where, you know, a lot of people will say, and there's a current attack on Pittman-Robertson specifically because it, it yep. taxes guns and ammo. Yep. Um, and the attack just basically says it's, it's a tax on a constitutional right is kind of what, what this attack says. And we need to fund it a different way. You know, I get that. I mean, it's like a pretty valid point to be made. But the point I would make in, in return to that is to go back to user user pays public benefits. Like we have intertwined the economic value of wildlife with the people that participate in the thing. If we decouple that, if we if we separate those things, we have we have taken the core of our system of wildlife that has worked over those 90 years or whatever it's been. Yeah. And we've we've taken it, we've taken that interplay away. And this this specific bill, the Return Act. Uh, out of a, a Republican congressman named Clyde out of Georgia has, has put this out there, has talked about it a lot. And um, he wants to take, I believe it's uh, royalties from federal oil and gas leases, which is a more stable income, because obviously the 11, the, these excise taxes rise and fall with the amount of goods sold within, within sure. archery and firearms and fishing. Um, so he says, well, that'll, that'll put more money in the coffer of Pittman-Robertson. But, but what it does is it connects what pays for wildlife to something that has no investment in wildlife at all. Right. It's no longer user yeah. pay. Yeah. Yeah, it's no longer user pay. You're, you have like the money coming from into Pittman-Robertson no longer has any connection to the actual use of the wildlife, the consumption yeah. of the wildlife, um, the legislation around the wildlife. And so that's, that's such an important, an important piece of the structure there that, that if we, if we move away from that, we kind of, we just cut the legs out from under the things that we've achieved to this point. Um, and it's been working. You know, like our wildlife yeah. have been thriving. The elk numbers yeah. are the best numbers we've seen in, in years and everything's been thriving. It's been working. Yeah. yeah it's wor like on a broad scale. That's an easy one. You're like, man, we extirpated pretty much, I mean, talk mallard duck, white-tailed deer. There's more white-tailed deer on this continent right now than when Christopher Columbus hit it and thought <laughs> right. it was Spain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or thought it was wherever he thought he landed. Um, right. 
India. But so we, yeah, we have, there, there's two examples of this. One, I think if you know anything about RMEF, if you know anything about Wild Turkey Federation, if you know anything about Mule Deer Foundation, you'll know that there's a period of time, you know, take turkeys, for example, there's a period of time where we had extirpated turkeys and hunters and wildlife conservationists from the NWTF went and made deals with state agencies and government agencies. They went and netted turkeys and translocated them all over the country to reestablish population. You know, we're a generation away from, you know, on the other side of that at this point. And, and here we are hunting turkeys as if they always <laughs> existed right. in these places. Right. Some people do, not everybody. But it's always to return to the other side of that coin is, is some of the populations of turkeys, Tennessee, Georgia, I know for sure, Arkansas. Turkey populations are now on the downslope. And the cool thing that goes back to user benefits, um, you know, user pays public benefits, is that these, these states now, under our model of conservation, are basically saying, populations are going down, we're going to hunt less. Less tags, we're going to change regulations. We're going to manage for hunter opportunity, take away some hunter opportunity so we can manage for the overall health of these wildlife populations. And that is, that's kind of the core concept at work. It's easy to say this all works when everybody has a turkey to shoot or an elk to shoot or whatever. But the test is when we don't, or when something is happening and likely with turkeys, it's a myriad of things, habitat loss, habitat fragmentation, overhunting, whatever it might be. It's quite a few different things. Yeah. It's the different things. It's, it's like a, yeah, it's a, it's a construction of many things. Mm-hmm. And I think what's important to, to know and which denotes that this thing is working, at least in my experience, is that hunters are, are the first ones to step up and go, yep, take my opportunity away because yeah. I care more about the turkey populations overall. And there's, this happened in Tennessee this year. This is happening across, across states where hunters are standing up and going, I understand I had three tags. Now I have one. I had five week season. Now I have three. I get it. I'm, I'm here for it. What else can I do? Um, and the duck stamp is one of the only taxes in American life that the constituency that gets taxed goes, yeah, raise that thing, raise it up. <laughs> yeah. We're, yeah. We're yeah. Taxes more. Yeah. <laughs> taxes more. Raise it up. 12% excise tax. We're in. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's the things like when, when there's a non-hunter that's questioning some of the stuff, like when you explain it to them like that, people, I, I, people's jaws drop on the floor. They just don't understand. Yeah. They just don't understand the depth of, of how this is working. It's not only working for wildlife, it's working for the people that care about wildlife. It's engendering the right type of participation. Yes. Um, and man, that's like a, that's something when you see it in play, like with these turkeys, um, man, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it is amazing and that we have us collectively as hunters are willing to do that because we understand the species. We we know what we want, man. We want more species to hunt down the road, right? So if we got to take a backseat for a couple of years, we're okay with it. Yeah. Down. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what you would want, right? Because you go around the world and you look at kind of how um, wildlife is valued. We in this country, we everyone agrees, even non-hunters. Even animal rights folks agree that we want these animals around. Yeah, we all agree. There's like this general agreement that we want elk. We're good with it. Like yeah. nobody, very few people are mad that elk exist and want them to go away. Yeah. Um, and so we live in a country where we have that baseline, 
and then we also live in a country where, you know, we just need to talk a little bit more about the things that, that hunting does on all the levels that we've already kind of rolled through. And I think it, it, it translates to just this, to that question is like, is this good for society mm. on a personal level, on a structural level, ideological level, philosophical, whatever it might be. And I'm like, if you, you sit with me long enough, I think, and I think hunters, most hunters can do this too. Like if you sit with me long enough, I can tell you parts of that, that are going to get you at least to, you know, partially understand where I'm coming from. Yeah. I mean, obviously you've proven the point that it is good. If, if you can agree that we want these animals here, how do we keep these animals here? Well, we have to raise money to, to help with habitat and conservation to help these animals stay here because the human population is just continues to increase and we continue to take over so, more lands and it needs to happen. So I'm with you hundred percent. I think most people would be, especially a non-hunter that heard the, the talk that you just put out that they would be right with you hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I moved to Austin, Texas, I had lived, I had never lived in a place I don't know if you would call it a liberal place, but a place where there wasn't a lot of hunters floating around. And I went to work at Yeti and I thought it's a hunting company. There's going to be hunters everywhere. It's going to be great. There was a few, there's a few, um, but there was a lot of people that, that I work with every day or I went to parties with or wherever I ended up that were like, you're the hunting guy. Explain this to me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you were the like, raisin in the bowl of milk. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Can we talk about something else? Um, and so it just forced me to kind of, I was like, man, if I'm going to be that guy um, and I love this enough that I, I'm like, I got to know this stuff. Yeah. I got to know it deeply. Um, that's true. So that's what really, that's what really triggered that for me. Cause I was at a couple of cocktail parties or wherever I would be where somebody would be like, you know, tell me about this Pittman Robertson. And I'd be like, yeah, 11%. And then I would, I, I didn't really know much about it. Um, and, and I did one time, I was writing an article for Peterson's hunting about Pittman Robertson. And I did a little straw poll with a hundred of, of my hunting friends, colleagues, whatever. And I asked them, what is Pittman Robertson? And I was like, I just want an answer. It could be a sentence to, to know that you understand what this is. 97 out of hundred people I talked to didn't know. Didn't know. Right. What it was. They cut some of them tried to get through it, but none of them knew what it was. I mean, it just, just as a general rule. Right. And then you start to realize that, this is a tax. It's not voluntary. Like you, you can hunt and don't have to know this. You don't have to know this. Like you, you buy your license, you buy your goods, your the American system of conservation funding takes this in as a mandatory thing. You don't mm -hmm. get to opt out. It takes in your money. And then, and then, and we can talk about it if you want the detailed, ridiculously mind numbing process of how they dole it back out to the States. But like they, it's just a mandatory thing. And then when you buy your game regulation, when you buy your license, you get your little book. There's nothing in there about it. Right. There's not like a primer in the beginning that says like, Hey, here's how we got here. Uh -huh. Don't want to do this again. Here's our model of conservation. Here's our assistant conservation funding. You know, here's all the things that you're, here's the world that you're living in without even knowing it. And so most hunters, it's not, it's not in, it's not put in front of them. Really. Right. Um, they just so, know if they want to continue doing the hobby they want to do, they have to end up paying money and okay, I'll pay it to go hunt. And man, you man, yeah. that's a really good point. It should be in the forefront of hunting. Yeah. 
Uh, they should be in the forefront of that brochure or magazine. It should be out there. And I don't know why it's not. Maybe it's fear of hunters rebelling against it, but you wouldn't think so if they knew what it was going for. It it was sustaining their hobby that they love, right? I think game agencies are probably like, there's enough to understand that people, <laughs> there's enough of the game <laughs> regulation book that yeah. people aren't going to read. We can't add more to it. But I do think like, and Hunter, like Hunter Safety does teach a lot of these concepts. Right. Um, but it's a, it's a two day class and they have the thing now where you can just take it online and click through it and, yeah. You no, know, that's not, it's not enough. It's, that's not enough. It's kind of just got to be ingrained in, in, in the community. I mean, it just has to be, yeah. um, at this point, if it's not, we're kind of missing, missing an opportunity to, you know, the, 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 the ultimate opportunity is not to bring more people in, although that's, that's important too, but it's, it's to talk to those non-hunters and be like, look, you're probably never going to do this. You're welcome to, uh, come over to my house and get some meat whenever you want. You're probably never going to do this, but if you do, I'm happy to explain to you, but I, yeah. you know, let me, let me give me 10 minutes. I'll explain to you why it's good for society and good for me personally. And at least you can go away happy <laughs> like, yeah. that I'm not some murderous bastard because of the, the <laughs> yeah. heads on my wall or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So at least you can do that with someone that, you know, um, yeah. but on a broad scale, you just got to continue. Like we have to continue to answer the question. It's like, is this still good? Is this still useful? You know, there's some shadowy corners in hunting that that all all always end up being shot. The light shines on them in the popular press before any of the stuff we've talked about already. So, oh, for sure, it's it's part of it. You know, as part of it, man. And that's you know, talking about all this stuff. I know you have a a nonprofit that you had started, and uh, let's lead into what you're doing now, man. We could definitely get into your background. You have a very interesting, and I, I think it's very interesting, very cool background with some cool brands that sure. I'd love to pick your brain at some point, but for your yeah. time, what are you doing now, man? Tell me about the, uh, <laughs> the Woodside stuff and tell me about the, uh, uh, your nonprofit. Yeah, man. I, I, uh, I got to a point where I thought I could do this on my own. And now I'm in this point where I am. That's, uh, 70%, uh, exhilarating 30% terrifying. <laughs> trying to try to create these things on your own yeah. um but i yeah I, I worked for meat eater for about three years i was one of the first employees that they hired when they were starting the big incorporated thing and i was able to help build that in some ways and got a lot of perspective out of that um and got a lot of ideas that i wanted to, to put forth and um thought i could and so when i left there last year i, I really committed myself to to not only the nonprofit that we'll talk about here in a minute, but, but being able to have media that was independent, that, that certainly had partners and brands and third parties that were involved, but was, but I could, could really drive independently, you know, and this is a whole nother podcast probably, but there's a lot of self-censorship that goes on in any media outlet that is in the corporate world. Any corporate media outlet has a, 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 a series of triggers that lead to censorship sure. it's generally usually just pr it's usually just public relations what's good for the brand what's good for the brand most brands is not to have negative press it's to have positive press so if you yeah. want to say anything that might be true and necessary but not good for the corporation it generally gets shoved under the rug and i you know i uh I don't know if we talked about this, but I have a journalism degree. I was always wanting to be a reporter. And I remember the days when like reporters, Woodward and Bernstein were like these white knights going around, you know, 
fighting against power and stuff yeah. like that. Like that's kind of who I always want to be when I sit down and think of what I'd like to do. So Woodside for me, it was one, just, just the mechanism of breaking away from that corporate media structure, man, it, the corporate media in hunting has given me my life, my career. I love it. I, I, I'm not here to beat on it all that much. I just do think that being able to say what I want and, and really sit down and think about exactly what needs to be said, good, bad, and different. Um, and go back to my journalism roots is really what I wanted to do with Woodside. So that's, you know, Woodside is the name is really, it's the street I grew up on basically. That's, oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. But for me, like, but for me, it's, it's more of, of being able to have these conversations that are needed and do it from a, a centrist position. Someone who cares about wildlife, somebody who wants to get it right. Um, and has a little journalist, journalistic, uh, training to maybe break things down. So that's what I like to do. It's what gets me up in the morning, uh, from a media side. So we tried to do that with Woodside. We recently went into mountain lines in Texas, which is a fun one, which is a fun nice. debate, uh, and got a guy named Ben Masters who made a film, um, about Texas wildlife called deep in the heart had Matthew McConaughey. That was the, the voice of it. It was really good. Nice. It was an amazing film. If you haven't seen it, he is in the center of this controversy about mountain lions in Texas. Mountain lions in Texas currently don't have uh, any regulations around them. There's two distinct populations in South and West Texas, and you can kill them and trap them ad nauseum with, with no regulation. And then, so he and uh, a bunch of other folks got together, created this group, Texas for Mountain Lions, and they're pushing for regulation. Uh, population studies and regulations all of this goes along with our model of conservation. That's exactly what our model of conservation says to do. Exactly. It says to look at the populations. If there's a distinct population level success and we, we introduce regulation via hunting, we do that with every, every other game species across this country. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what they're calling for. On the other side is a dude named Cable Smith. Uh, who's kind of, he's got Lone Star, out, Lone Star Outdoor Show. He's an outspoken kind of right-wing character. And he be he believes Texans for Mountain Lions is an anti-hunting group disguised as a, as a pro mountain lion group. Oh shoot! <laughs> so he came on the I know, dude. It's great. It's it's a thing. He came on the show and talked about how there was individuals on the board of Texans for Mountain Lions who had who had uh, protested predator hunting contests and were part of a thing called Project Coyote, which is pretty controversial down across the country when that aired. It was very negative on predator hunting. So he believes that that it's the slippery slope uh, is is engaged through text from outlines. They're calling for regulation, but then the next step is to push for banning. You know, once it gets wow. gets to that point. So that's what he believes. Right. And so there's a big debate down there in Texas about what to do. And so we 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 did two episodes, tried to suss that out, tried to ask each one of those two guys what. Um, what their what their goals are, why they why they're saying and doing what they're doing, and what they think is best for mountain lions, best for the resource ultimately. Um, and so that's the kind of thing I love to do, um, and the kind of thing that gets me going. And so that's what Woodside is. And then uh, we we've been introducing um, species based shows. We did Roost, which is a turkey hunting show. It's kind of learn to turkey hunt from A to Z. So we did uh, eight episodes. Myself and a buddy of mine, Sam Soholt. People probably know him as the public land bus guy, maybe <laughs> these days. All right. Yeah. He's yeah. a good buddy of mine. It's been around the industry forever. So we paired up co-hosted a show called Roost. It's really eight chapters of learn to turkey hunt. 
Um, we started with Will Primos and went into the biology and natural history of turkeys and then into conservation and then in how to kill them and what to do when you kill them if you want to eat them. Um, and then we did the same thing for elk here recently with a podcast called Wallow. My buddy Sam Lundgren and I uh, co-host that. So we, we've got a bunch of stuff uh, on the network. I already mentioned Hunter and Vegan, which we did earlier this year too. Yeah. So um, maybe cranking so, out podcasts. So podcasts, but structured in a way super educational. Um, yeah. It you know it looks like you've done multiple segments of a topic for your pod for podcast, but but at the same time, almost like an an online educational. I want to say maybe not course, but something similar. Yeah. 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 We were trying to call it like an introductory the thing before you learn specifics. You know. Mm. I felt like with elk, we had we started with Randy Newberg, and we the the idea was to, to start with defining an elk hunter, which is a lot of what we've talked about already. Like who is, who are you when you become an elk hunter? Why are you doing it? What, why, why is it beneficial? What's the thing? And, Rand, and uncle Randy is the perfect person for that. You know, and then we went to the RMEF and got a couple other biologists and, and started talking about the natural history of elk, how they get here, um, conservation of elk, and then the biology of elk. Uh, we went through all of that in three episodes, about four hours there. So we felt like, before we get into how to kill them and what to do, we want you to know the basic premise of elk. Like, what is it? Why do we hunt them? What's important about us and them and them and us? Um, what goes through their head when they do things? Where are they each time of year? We learn like all kinds of crazy things like uh, elk have a clicking sound that they make with the joints in their ankles. Oh, that I didn't even know that. I didn't know this either, man. This guy, I didn't know this. Like this guy, Tom Tooman from the RMEF, took us through things like that. Like elk, there's a joint in their ankles that clicks when they walk and it lets other elk know. It's an auditory signal that lets other elk know that that's an elk. That's huh. not something else walking through the woods. So I asked him, I'm like, should I bring a clicker out of the woods now? <laughs> like, what I, that's where my head's going. <laughs> that's where I'm at. I, I'm probably going to do it here at some point. But yeah, so little things like that. But th that goes to show you, like, there's there's a million things we can learn um, from guys like Tom Tooman, who was a, you know, 30, 40 year uh, elk biologist for the Army. Yeah. And then we went in and we had Corey Jacobson come in and just do like the basis of calling. Like, what are the noises you want to make? What do those noises mean? And we learned a lot from him about emoting and calling elk. Like he, he basically said, you need to learn a mew for a cow, a challenge bugle and a location bugle. And the rest of it is, is your own emotion that you lay into those calls. Mm -hmm. So we learned a lot there from him. And then we had Ryan Lampers um, in here to talk about gear. It was like a three and a half hour podcast talking about <laughs> gear. Uh, it was wild. And then um, had Remy Warren talking about like, high level like the playbook of elk and then had jason phelps talk about how to go from elk hunter to an elk killer how to like be consistently filling you know cutting your tags yeah and then had a buddy of ours ty stubblefield who's a bit of a montana elk hunting legend talk about packing out what to do with grizzlies yeah. and all and all those things so we tried to lay it out and you know yeah it was we try to be extensive to say like this is if you listen to all 11 hours of this you're going to get you know maybe not a full lesson of elk hunting but you're going to understand like how we feel it breaks down from, from A to Z. Yeah. That's super extensive. And I, and in my little circle of the world, I'm the hunter guy. Right. So I have a bunch of friends that are now trying out hunting and it seems that no one wants to just go do a deer rifle hunt. It's always 
I want to go from zero to the hardest thing I could possibly do, which is an archery elk hunt. So I'll try to help yeah. my friends out as much as I can. I'll, I'll take someone new out in the woods each year for a few days and we'll go elk hunting. But man, that's really good because I didn't even think about, uh, you know, but why do you want to do this? What, like, what's, what's your, who are you and who do you want to be as an elk hunter? That's really good, man. That's a really good point. It was a good, like Randy Newberg, when you get to, we were basically, it was a warning. Like that podcast was like, listen, you're going to get into this and then you're going to, then you're going to, it's all you're going to think about. Just, just, so just to warn you before we, you listen to us for 11 hours, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> like you're going to be like, Hey, this might be a cool thing to try. And then the next thing you know, your wife's pissed off at you. You got no money. And it's all you... <laughs> That's so true. This is a warning. It's a warning. Yeah. Like this is going to happen to you. Yeah. Um, so that's it. And we, you know, like, we try to approach those podcasts um, as again, like a chunk of things you can binge listen to mm-hmm. and let, and get it all. We did the same thing with the Turkey podcast. Um, you could get it all, but it, it, it was laid out in like chronologically. So you could understand from, you know, A to Z, what you needed to, to the concepts you needed to push, push to. Yeah. Um, and luckily all these really, these expert hunters were willing to talk to us. And, and we did, we tried the other thing I wanted to really do with these, with those particularly is, is take this, like, I'm, I, I would say, even though I love elk hunting and I think about it all the time, my wife like makes me, my wife last year was like, you got to stop thinking about turkeys in like June <laughs> and start thinking about elk. And then, cause she could see that I've always conflicted. Cause I love those things. Like I start thinking about turkeys in like December, usually right around, right after Christmas. Sure. <laughs> Take my robe <laughs> off and I just. That's pretty early. Put, <laughs> yeah, it's too, it's too early. I mean, it's, honestly, it's too early. I tried ice fishing and skiing and stuff and it just doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> I think about um, but yeah, but like to be able to compartmentalize those things and think about them that way, I think was important. And we tried to, in what we did, we really tried um, to ask questions that a new hunter might ask or an intermediate hunter might ask, we discussed a lot of those levels of hunting and like, and how to, to really be where you are as a hunter not look at social media and get all hyped up that you're going to kill a bull telling people like, man, this is a very, you're going to be 80, 85% unsuccessful. And, you know, think about Randy Newberg. I think he took him eight or 10 years to kill his first elk in Montana on public land. So, um, you know, just try to give people that context too. It's like, if, if you want to do this and I'm, I'm all in, if you do, if you do, like you're going to just be prepared for a lot of failure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and I think that's super important because people, all they see is the social media post or they see uh Remy Warren or, you know, are they listening to a podcast that, you know, glorifies the hunting and, and obviously hunting is very glorified. They like, I, obviously I, we both love it, but it's, I'm going to go out in the woods and I'm going to harvest my first animal and it's going to be great. I'm like, mm, probably not, <laughs> but I will help you the best that I can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a big part of those expectations. We preached yeah. on those, both those podcasts about expectations. Yeah. Um, I wounded a bull early this year and I was pretty honest about it wherever I could be. And it was oh, the first time I'd done that with, it's the first time I did it with elk and not recovered the animal i'm pretty sure that this particular bull is is out chasing cows right now probably but i don't know i, I just don't mm-hmm. know um and so 
then after that happened to me, I remember I was scrolling through social media one day and I realized that there was, I just scrolled through about 10 dead elk in a, in a five minute span. And mm-hmm. I thought that's boy, I know what that is. I know that's just how things go on social media, but for somebody who doesn't know, it's a real issue. And I've met, I met a German guy that lived in New York city. I was in Turkey camp with him. I want to yeah, it was Turkey camp. And he was really into hunting. He was going to do archery Turkey. And I just, I was like, what archery Turkey. That's a tough one. Too. Uh, he's like, give yourself a chance, man. <laughs> uh, so he was, he had learned, you know, from a certain individuals online that tur- archery hunting is cool and turkeys are cool. I'm down with both. Um, so he came out the first day, as you might expect, wounded, you know, shot a bird, wounded it, it flew up in a tree, and he didn't understand. He came to me in a German accent, was like, hey, I didn't know that that happened. Like, I didn't expect it or think about it. Now I'm just crushed that this bird is roosted tonight with an arrow sticking out of it. I was like, mm-hmm. man, that's, I remember just talking about like, this is, archery is awesome. The craft of archery is awesome. It is like, it's damn near uh, therapy for me in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But like, it's when you get out in the field, it is a whole different thing. Like, you, yeah. you're setting, setting forward a series of events that quite often for many people, even people that are really, really good at it, doesn't go well. Yeah. You know, and it, when I posted that I wounded that bull this year, <laughs> like hundreds upon hundreds of people, I know how it feels. I know how it feels. I know how it feels. Um, and so, I don't know how you re-index that, but that's the problem. Man, I share my experience this year too, is I, you know, I put elk hunting, archery elk hunting as like the Super Bowl of my season, right? I trained for it all year long, uh, a lot of CrossFit, a lot of physical shooting all year. And that's what I'm training for is that hunt right there. Obviously I do a bunch of other hunts, but that's my Super Bowl. So this was a tough Super Bowl this year, uh, but I did get an opportunity. I shot a bull at about 50 yards. I thought the shot was very good. There was a lot of raining involved. Long story short, I did not recover the bull, could not find him. And I have lost animals before, not a lot, a few of them in my day of hunting. And it always sucks really bad, but this one hit a lot harder than a lot of them did. And I honestly contemplated giving up bow hunting in those moments. Mm-hmm. In that day, the day after, it's like, man, if I had a gun in my hand, if I had a muzzleloader, or a rifle, that would be a dead bull, no problem. So I, I, li- I seriously constantly given it up, did a post just like you did, kind of sharing my experience, because I don't think a lot of people share that experience on social media, that other side of it. And I got a lot of good you know, feedback. Hey, don't give up. Happens to everybody. And I got a lot of non-hunters being like, oh, you're real emotional about this, aren't you? I'm like, yeah, this is a very emotional thing for me. And they're like, I did not realize how emotionally involved you are in this. I'm like, oh yeah, this sucks real bad. And that sucks because I didn't get my trophy elk. It sucks because that animal, I don't know if it's dead or alive. I don't know if I killed that animal and was not able to harvest its, its meat and use its body to the fullest. Man, there's a, there's a lot of emotions that go on with that, man. Yeah. yeah I remember when I was a kid, it used to be, don't talk about it. You know, the antis will capitalize on it. And there's still some of that, I guess, online. Um, yeah. I did the same thing, posted my thing and, and I only got positive feedback, like you were mentioning there. And then later on, I had somebody message me some screenshots of some other account <clears throat> where they were talking about how I had screwed hunting and I was a terrible hunter and all this other stuff like that. <laughs> and 
I was like, yeah, maybe, maybe it could be right. I mean, I certainly felt that. I mean, if you would have yeah. came to me, like you're a terrible hunter and you're ruining hunting, I'd be like, yeah, I feel that. <laughs> like, yeah. I feel it. You don't have to tell me. Like yeah. I, just like you, I did a whole damn podcast, like 11 hours of recording about elk hunting. I shoot my bow and every night, I mean, the bull I wounded this year was 34 yards away. I literally shoot my full-size elk target 34 yards off my back porch all the time. Yeah. And it's just, I, I don't know anymore. I have two, two young kids. So I think about time. Like every day I'm out elk hunting, I could be with them. Every day I'm out elk hunting, I could be focusing on work or focusing on bettering myself in other ways, but mostly my family. Yep. Because every time I'm out elk hunting these days, which takes a lot of time if you're going to do it right, I think I could be home with my kids right now. And I guarantee if I walked through the door, they would both run over and hug me and scream and they would be the most excited thing ever. So I'm depriving them of that by being out here doing this very personal thing. Right. Um, and I elk hunted alone for most of the year this year. And so it's that, that for me weighs the heaviest. If somebody that I've never met thinks that I did a stupid thing, I'm probably like, yeah, man, I did do a stupid thing. And I, even though I thought about it like you did for months and trained for months and had it all mapped out, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I had it sharpen my broadheads. I picked the right arrow, I, everything. It was like the moment of truth. I said, I need to aim a little high because there's a bush right over where his vital, his heart is, and his lower lungs. I have plenty of room to make this shot, but I'm going to aim a little. I don't want to shoot this bush. So I'm going to just, in the last moment before I sent that arrow, I was like a little bit higher than I think. So it went through my head. I let the arrow go and sure as hell, I shot higher than I thought. And that was my mistake. And it was like all of that. I mean, it's it probably akin to somebody that plays professional sports, um, except the one important part, you're not, not, nobody really gets hurt in professional sports like wildlife. So this is, it's the other thing. Like when I talked earlier about tragic knowledge, this is the tragic knowledge that you don't have. If you just go to Yellowstone national park and take pictures of elk, like you don't know what it feels like one to kill something and watch it die mm-hmm. and what that feels like, which is very important or two wound something, cause it pain and have to live with that emotion as a very human emotion it's very necessary and that that makes you a better person it makes you more like emotionally there with hunting it makes you more like mentally in tune to what it is and when you see one of those animals you respect it more um and and i guarantee if you're having a, a bacon egg and cheese sandwich like you don't res- like the, the the idea that that bacon felt pain is not <laughs> or could feel pain isn't existing and that's that goes back to this weird i think kinship we have with vegans that we don't realize but like it it, that is i think for me those emotions are so necessary like the when i shoot an animal and go up to it sometimes i celebrate but these days i just kind of like become completely still and silent and like you can't get an emotion out of me i kind of look if you, if you didn't know me, you'd probably think this weird ass serial killer guy <laughs> <laughs> that just gets like flat eyes you know, when he kills them. But for me, it's just this dump of pent up stress, especially with elk. I don't know what it is about elk because it's yeah. such a singular experience. You know, with turkeys, I'll kill five, six a year sometimes. And it's, it's, it's a repeatable process. Right. Um, and there's years where I've killed more than one elk, but generally you don't, you get one chance. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I really like you. I sat in the forest service cabin looking into a fire and just thinking like, what I, could I do this again? Could I put myself through this emotional nonsense again? Uh, yeah, I can. Yes, I can. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, it happens, man. And it's the unfortunate it side of it, you know, and you know, uh, and I, I'm sure you get this being the figure that you are is there's always the haters and the negative people out there that are spitting hate. Mm -hmm. And it's not the people that aren't hunters, the, the non-hunters that bother me. It's not the yeah. vegans or the people that, because they're just, there's not as educated in this world. And I understand that and I take it with a grain of salt. No big deal. It's the other hunters that are spitting hate that really bother me. It's I've got a video that's kind of gone viral a little bit on my YouTube channel and it's me. It's just a crazy weird shot. It's a, a shot on an elk that the elk ended up jumping the arrow. Actually I heard the arrow coming, spinning. I ended up spining him and following up with a second shot, but it just looks kind of crazy. And I got so much hate from so many hunters that I'm like, man, you're a hunter. We're supposed to be a family together collectively in this. And that's what bothers me the most is the negativity from other hunters. Not, not the people that have no clue about hunting. Cause I, I understand that it's, I think of the grain of salt, but right. Yeah. Right. Well, I think, yeah. I, I think, like I said, anti hunters or animal rights people, I, I understand. Like, I understand that. Yeah. Uh, I get it. I don't, I, I, it's just a different way to get there. It gets, I always describe it like with those folks, you realize like you're standing, if you started standing back to back, you started in the exact same place. You're standing back to back. And then you started walking away from each other. And eventually you got far enough away from each other that you forgot where you started. You forgot that you both started vegans and non and hunters both started like, boy, this, this world is confusing. I, I would love sure. to have some control and some power and something. And this kind of seems wrong that we kill shit in warehouses and, and, and slaughterhouses. It seems wrong. What can I do to solve that problem? And vegans go one way, we go the other, but we started in the same place. Right. Um, so I do feel a strange, it's like this has happened over time, like a stranger kinship to them than to many hunters because hunting, the industry itself, I've been in it for 15 years and talk about how awesome it is and it is. Um, I could talk all day about things I've seen hunters that have big profiles do that I didn't agree with in the pursuit of their own career or the pursuit of looking a certain way or the pursuit of, you know, so there's, there's a lot of, of, I would say a lot of incentive structures within the hunting industry that don't align with the values that we talk about. Mm -hmm, it just, sure. it just is true. And I, I, I'll sit here and argue with anybody about it. Like there are incentive structures around being a personality in the hunting world that kills things that if you care about the numbers, you care about the engagement, care about all the things that businesses care about, that you care about showing success more than failure. And I've seen some of the top names in hunting do things that I know is outside of their personality in pursuit of, I paid $75,000 to go on this elk hunt and bring a camera crew. And if we don't kill something, we don't have a show or we don't kill something. We don't have a story. Right. Um, I get it. I'm there too. A lot of times I'm like, I, I really want to get this done, but there's, there's this thing about hunting where you often are like the virtues of it are often very personal and they are not seen. So like when I hunt, I hunt, was hunting by myself when I wounded that elk. I didn't tell anybody, nobody would have known. Right, I could have went too. and got another arrow, put it in my quiver. Nobody would have known. Yep. Nobody would have known. 
But one of the things I think hunters, as I've gotten older, I try not to preach at people about this, but I do believe it to be true, is that this it's a very personal thing and you have to let hunting engender that responsibility in yourself, that you're responsible to do it right and you're responsible to tell the stories even when it's hard, even when you didn't go right, or even when you um, the things that you set out to do didn't go the right way. Um, even if it's going to mean you wasted some money and you have to tell people on the social medias that you suck today. <laughs> like <laughs> it is, it is, it's a personal thing. You are watching you. It's a mirror. Hunting is a mirror that you look into and whatever you like, you get to see what's looking back. It's and, good. And, and so many people forget that to forget to, to use that to make themselves better. And I have forgotten it many times, but these days I'm like, if I look in the hunting mirror and I, and I see somebody who has manipulated things, lied about things, said things that weren't true, shot an animal and didn't show the whole thing. You know, I, it's just like, that's on you. You're looking in the mirror. You're the only person that was there quite often. Right. Um, so it, yeah. it happens. I've seen it happen in, within brands seen it happen to to hunting celebs and people that have notable personalities i've seen it happen just to regular folks um and so it's a challenge man it's a challenge to do it right it is a challenge especially when you have all that pressure because you know i'm trying to build my brand within the hunting industry and you know yeah. it's it's hard not to be successful on a hunt because i would like to be known as a successful hunter and right. I don't want to be known as the guy that goes out and takes his bow for a hike, <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> yeah. but you it's, know, it's, it's hard, man. It's really hard. I like, you it's, have it's, a, I think, yeah, yeah. I have sponsors that are like, would you, did you kill something this year? And I was like, no, no, didn't do it. Kind of sucked. <laughs> like, yeah. what are they going to get out of it? They're going to be like, Hey, this guy we sponsor sucks. You know, like, that's not a thing. That's not yeah. what they want to say. Yeah. And obviously the sponsors want more attention on you. If you're successful, you get more attention. And like you said, you got a lot of money wrapped up in these home away from your family, man. There's a lot of pressure to be successful. And just in this last time, I just realized, Hey, that's not reality. That's not truth. And I think that yeah. maybe if some of these bigger names or some brands that might be doing it the other way could understand and realize, Hey, just by being truthful to your audience and showing them that it's not a successful hunt on every hunt. There's some, yeah. uh, maybe some bonding that could happen between them and their, their audience. Yeah. And just admitting that it's hard. It's hard to translate all this into something. It's hard mm -hmm. to translate hunting into a 22 minute piece of content or mm -hmm. it's just hard. That's why podcasts, I think sometimes can be helpful Yeah, because um, you can dig in and, and figure it out, but I'm, I'm, I'm as conflicted as anybody. So I'm not sitting here telling anybody who's made a mistake or anybody who's done something like that, that that, oh, they don't belong. I think they belong just as well as anybody because all of us th that do it, you know, in the public, I have made some error in judgment. I've, there's things that I've said that I take back right now. I one time said uh, that we should stop doing grip and grits. I said that uh, a lot in public. <laughs> and <laughs> if I could go back and talk to, you know, 28 year old Ben O'Brien, be like, no, no, man, that's not, that's not it. That's not what you're you, like, you're right in the premise, but the delivery is all wrong, man. Sure. You're way wrong. Um, and so that is the thing that I will say about our industry and kind of the things that run parallel to it. That's frustrating because we're not giving each other a real honest look at what happens 
and even when you talk about poaching, I've never been convicted of any wildlife violations. But on the same time, like there's there's probably things that I've done that would have been wildlife violations that I had no idea that I was doing. Right. Right. And so when someone gets convicted of a wildlife violation, it's important to, to like see the context of what's happening and judge it within that context. But yet, if somebody's on top and they commit a wildlife violation, we rush to tear them down mm-hmm. before we even get to like talk about the context of right. what's happening. And I'm, I'm all for whatever punishment needs to be leveled. If somebody makes those mistakes, it is important to own up to those things. So I'm not saying some poacher ought to get off because they're infallible like the rest. You get punished. You get punished. In a, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. If you live by the public, uh, it, you know, like if you live by social media engagement and your downloads and your followers, you're going to die by that thing if you make a mistake. It's just part of, of, of that, you know, that exchange. But um, people just rush in and, and hope to tear things down yeah. um, within hunting. So it's, it's, I've seen it. I've talked to people that have been, I've talked to female uh, hunters that I really appreciate and had great conversations with. And then afterwards, they're like, I think I might not do hunting anymore. Like, what? What are you talking about there? I just get so much hate. I just get, and I'm like, from anti-hunters? No, no, hunters. Hunters. Yeah. And it's just like, what kind of world? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's a, it's a comp, that's another real, a really complicated one. I'm not going to say, Oh, I don't read the comments. I'm fine. Like I, I try to read the comments and understand where people are coming from. And sometimes they're just being mean, man. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes they're just being mean. The thing that kind of helps me to like sugarcoat the comments a little bit is, if someone has enough time and energy in a day to go onto your YouTube channel or your Instagram and get, leave you a negative, nasty comment, man, their life just can't be that great. <laughs> you know, you have to be just a negative person, probably not enjoying life very much. So I kind of feel bad for them that they can't be positive yeah. and be in a happy place. A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm I get mostly positive comments. I, I don't, I'm not in the world. I think if I like Google my name and went to some message boards, I would probably find some things that, that I didn't like. Um, but I just, you know, most of the things I get are positive. Um, and I, I see social media anymore is like this very positive force that I can use. Um, you know, it's algorithms are confusing. <laughs> like, and always think they probably shadow, they shadow ban me cause I like Joe Rogan or something. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I think it's a positive force. I think it has more positives than negatives. It's just that we over-index the negatives emotionally. Yeah. Like we just over-index, you could get a hundred, and this is psychology 101, you can get a hundred self-affirming, you're the best hunter ever. Thank God that you exist on this earth. You've changed my <laughs> life. And the one guy that cuts deep and he's yeah. like, you might be a great hunter, but, and then he, he sl- cuts you, that thing happens. And I think, um, a struggle I think probably for most hunting media creators is that you, is that you could tend to get this weighty self image, right? Like be, if yourself, if the way you see yourself is connected to ex, externalities, to people that are saying good things or bad things, when that weighty self image is connected to the people that follow you or talk to you that you've never met, that just opens up the landscape where they can cut you down just as easy as they build you up. You know? So true. I have true. tried 
I've tried to, to do like force myself to be better and be so hard on myself that no one could be harder on, on me than me. And I learned that from Joe Rogan. Like I learned that from being around him and listening to him on his podcast and different things. Yeah, he taught me that. And it, it is, dude, it is true. Like if you're harder on your, you're like, yeah, you don't like me because you think I'm, I voted for the wrong person. Great. I probably did. I don't know. I'm not a political expert. I'm doing my best to vote for the right thing. Right. I don't know. Um, and when, so, so when that happens, you're just like, oh, okay. Yeah. You're probably right. I'm just going to keep getting better every day. I don't know. I've never met you. <laughs> you might suck too. <laughs> you seem real smart. So it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the truth of it all. So I, yeah, I, I don't know. That's how I process it, but it is, um, most people I talk to will say that, that it's not anti-hunters. It's just it's not. It's not. Uh, not. And it is, man. Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, I understand your point. But tell me about your nonprofit, man. What yeah, you got going on yeah, there? yeah. Um, well, we, you know, over all this conversation, like I uh, work for a lot of businesses and you know how businesses are. They like to have numbers and growth and revenue and KPIs. Yeah. I can't even remember what that stands for. Key performance indicators. Mm. Um, there's a lot of people in the corporate world that love things like KPIs and ROIs and all yeah, these they love the little acronyms. acronyms yeah. Which, you know, fine, whatever, but I, I don't like that stuff. Um, I try to approach things with a value in mind and try to try to do better. Um, and so after struggling with a lot of things in hunting, like how the paradox of we want people to love hunting, but not everybody can do it because we just don't have the resources for that. It wouldn't work. What do we do? What's so to me, the media company is, is for me to try to be able to talk to people, tell them how I feel and try to convince them that this is a good thing for everybody. But I also felt that we needed something that was real and tangible and personal, you know? So, um, my old podcast at meat eater, we, uh, it's called the hunting collective and we had, uh, you know, a pretty good listenership. And we had like an exchange of emails every episode. And basically uh, we had a guy named Juan Carlos from the Dominican Republic write in and tell us that he had moved to America and that he um, was living in the Blue Ridge mountains of Virginia, I believe. And he needed a hunting mentor. And so he asked me if I'd read it on the air and see if I could get him a few po folks to put their hand up. So I did read it on the air. And we got like 50 emails, 40 or 50 emails from people that wanted to mentor Juan Carlos. I was like, damn, okay. Well, sent some people his way. And um, on the next episode, kind of made a joke. Hey, that was our first regional chapter. Uh, and we laughed. Well, <laughs> it turns out that uh, a lot of the listeners of that show uh, took that to heart and started creating like Discord channels, uh, Facebook pages, things to like collect around mentorship. And it took me a while to realize what was happening. And once I did, I said, man, I got to get ahead of this. We got to figure this out. Like people really want this. And so we, so I made a call on the podcast. If you want to lead a chapter, email me and we'll organize this. Please God, let's organize this. So it doesn't <laughs> go off the rails. And um, so I did that. And that, that week I got hundreds of emails from people that was, that were volunteering as leaders uh, in their state. And at the end of it, we had 41 or 42 state chapters, you know, of this non-existent uh, thing. Uh, so that went on for a while. The podcast eventually ended. I left Meat Eater, but it kept going. 
it just kept snowballing. These people kept joining, they kept mentoring each other. Um, and so last November we decided, you know, let's get our 501c3, let's start this thing. Let's rename it the Hunt in Common because, you know, the, the, the members came up with that name because they wanted to keep the acronym THC. And we started a nonprofit. We elected some, some officers and all of them were volunteer. We raised some money from all of these volunteers, uh, build a website and um, a logo and <laughs> did all the things that, that real nonprofits have to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, all from all from funding from from our original folks and uh, talk. I went and talked about it on Joe Rogan's podcast. That helped, as you imagine it might. Course, yeah. um, and we got like a flood of people that were interested, and it took us a while to get to do it right. Um, and and now we have still those same volunteers. We have uh, guys in California. We have a former NFL offensive lineman that's our treasurer. We have a biotech. Uh, entrepreneur in LA that's that's on our uh officer team we got a sales guy from Wisconsin uh, you know an electrician from Nebraska like this all these people came together to help lead this organization and our mission now a year and some change later is you know to create successful long-term mentorships uh, and that are local as well so we want to kind of break it all down and say there's somebody near you that is committing to you on a long term and that wants to, um, you know, that's a good fit for you. If you want to learn to hunt, we're going to find somebody for you that that's near you and that can help. So that's kind of a, where it's come to. We just had our official launch in August, launched our website, launched our brand, launched our social media channels. Um, we are focusing on Wisconsin and California to start. Um, Wisconsin, I think, has almost 20 active mentorships. California has 25 going right now. And we're trying to learn what a mentorship really is. Like, what are the what are the barriers to entry? When do they people fall off? When do they have success? So right now we're in this kind of beta process of learning what mentorship is, basically. Yeah. Um, we have a bunch of other leaders in other states that are still working on mentorships, and we're we are working on a structure that we can take from those two states and transfer it to the rest of the country. Um, and I think that's scalable on a mentorship. Oh, yeah level it's not a national campaign it has nothing to do with a national campaign it's, it's a state by state by state um, campaign to 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 have a small amount of mentorships in each state and then maybe we have big enough numbers to say that we're making a difference on a larger scale but for now you know we have 54 year old uh divorce attorneys from san francisco who've never hunted before who are going to hunt this year for the first time and yeah moms who have our single moms who want to take their kids to do something engaging that are coming to us and we're mentoring. And, um, you know, like I said, 40 year old fathers of in LA who are driving to three hours or whatever it is to Chico, California to get mentored by somebody they've never met before. Um, and so, yeah, it's really to me about those personal stories. Those things are pretty cool to, to learn. And, uh, we got a lot, we got more questions than answers. That's for sure. But we, we really want to, to, to kind of crack the egg of mentorship, like what is it, how is it most successful and how can we be kind of the arbiter of, of mentorship in a way that's, that helps everybody. So um, yeah, we're, our website's huntingcommon.org and you can go there and get involved and we need leaders and we need uh, people that are willing to help. Yeah, guys, and I'll link that up here in, in the uh, comments. 
and right here on the screen if you're watching this on, a, on the visual but i really like i like the concept that you have of basically a, a bunch of fingers out there extensions of yourselves mentors in each state that is local that they may even be able to go out and have a coffee or something together shake a hand yeah. i like that a lot that's I, that's I think that's a really good concept and just full transparency i don't want you to think that i'm some yahoo that uh is is copying a thing but i literally just started a, a hunt mentor program myself and i call it yes. hunt mentor um what i've done is basically we did a live seminar had a, a bunch of people sign up submit questions and i just went over questions here on, on a live zoom call and don't have no clue where i'm going to take it but i think you guys are absolutely doing a great thing because you know as me and you grew up we had someone to mentor us as our fathers or family a lot of these new hunters don't have that. And it's a, the barrier of entry of hunting is enormous. Even just whitetail hunting is, is enormous or turkey hunting. I couldn't imagine, you know, the barrier of entry of to go on an elk hunt if not having that mentor figure. Yeah. We've, you know, what we've also learned uh, is that it happens differently in different States. Like we, we have, it just happened differently in Wisconsin than it happened in California because there are different challenges in those places. Mm -hmm. um, one of those things, one of the things that we found out was because California is a much bigger state, it was hard for people to gather. So they were doing digital gatherings and maybe everybody in California is like kind of alcoholics, but they kept doing happy. Hours. <laughs> I don't know. That, like, <laughs> That's good. For them, it was like, whatever. It was a happy hour. In Wisconsin, maybe they just drink all the time. So they just got together like for hunts and different things. It, it was just like different. The Wisconsin folks were doing banquets and doing squirrel hunts and doing gatherings. And the California people were getting together for happy hours because a lot of them were professionals that had, mm -hmm. you know, commutes and different things. So, so I think part of our learning thus far is that if, if we're going to figure out how to make mentorships work, and that's part of like, we wanted, wanted to have a simple mission was just like create successful mentorships. You know, that success is the part that we need to figure out that we're working really hard to figure out, which is, you know, we had, I know I was looking at some of our numbers the other day, we had 60, it was like 94% of our mentorships in California got, had some interaction, like had, oh, had a phone great. call, had, had an interaction. 64% got in the field and 20% killed. Oh, if we could maintain amazing. that, That's dude, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's, yeah. let's do it. Um, but to your point about what you're doing, I have realized since we started this thing, people, there's more mentorship organizations than I ever could have imagined. Like I could ever. And I think it's because it feels really cool to do. <laughs> it feels really, it's like feels very good. rewarding. To, yeah. It feels good, man. Yeah. Personally. Um, and so I hope as, at some point there's enough people that are interested that we could create some sort of coalition and all come together and go like, we're all mentoring. Like what piece of the pie can we focus on? How can we help sure. each other? I've been talking to, you know, like hunters of color. There's a, another one called newhunter.org. Um, man, there's just, just a ton. And through my brand work, I've gotten to know that pretty much every major conservation organization has some kind of adult mentorship program baked into yep. what they do. Yep. Um, you know, and so it's, it's happening we're doing it and it would be nice one day to be able to understand the scale at which it's happening across all the folks that are engaging in it. Um, you know, yeah. cause it's, cause again, we were talking about kind of, you know, the negative things about the hunting community, but there's, 
a million positive things. Oh, for and sure. Very few negatives. But to me, this is one of those things because it becomes personal. You can see it. Like you can you teach somebody how to hunt and you can see it. And also you personally know what it feels like. Uh-huh. Pass that on. So it's uh-huh. it's cool. For me, it's it's been a way to balance that corporate stuff, balance that need for data and engagements and to somehow like make an algorithm out of the thing I care about. Like I I don't care. I don't want it to be an algorithm. I don't want to introduce hunters to each other through some algorithm on social media. Right. Like I want to introduce them by like in an analog way. Just this, this you seems like you would enter you would get along with you. Go go for it. And yeah, we'll help you along. Yeah. Right. Go hang out. It's gonna be great. And so we are going to create a digital product for the hunt in common that helps people along that has like a community base and has all the things people do to build websites. We're going to do that, but that's not who we are. Um, we are people that are going to put in the work to, to, to make this thing happen. Um, and, and I think that's, I've seen that in our industry. A lot of people like, Oh, we're going to create a website. People will use it. And that's why we're going to be successful at this. To me, it's a bit of the opposite. We're going to create it because you kind of have to. Yeah. It'll help. Yeah. Yeah, it'll help, but it's not the thing. The, the, us is is having someone there willing to lead, willing to help, willing to bridge the gaps that exist. Um, and and we've seen, man, we've we've had like a weird year and a half where it was kind of a joke at first, and then it wasn't. And then we had, we didn't know how to build a website. We had to raise some money and we had to figure out what website it was we were going to build and how we were going to talk about it. Uh, I was, I was kind of nervous about talking about it because I didn't want to disappoint people um, that wanted help. You know, like I'm, I'm in Florida and I want help. And I said, well, sorry, we don't, you know, we We don't have any Florida yet. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We have this one guy, but he's, you know, so we, you know, we had been, we have slow played the kind of publicity on it and, and, have really tried to be honest with people that like we are going, we're going to get there. So we need two things. One, if you're in California, Wisconsin, we need you to come help us figure out how to, how to make this work. And if you're in another state, we need you to join most likely the group of people that's already there to help, you know, stabilize and get that thing to, to the level where we know that it, it can, can be repeated and it's going to help people. Yeah. And um, taking it slow. There's another thing I learned from the corporate world. Everything has to grow fast. If it doesn't grow fast, it's not successful. And uh, as soon as you grow, you got to grow more. And mm-hmm. so for us with this, we really want to, we want to do the opposite. Um, we want it to be grassroots and, and it'll grow at the, at the speed that it can grow. Right. Well, and for you guys, it's, you know, the corporate world is about numbers and money and covering costs and profitability. And especially if you have investors. For a nonprofit like this, it's not about money unless you need to raise money to help the people in your nonprofit, yeah. you know? So it's all about people, not numbers. So I think that's, yeah. that's the, the key thing for you guys. That's great. Man. Yeah. And it goes back to like the thing that we were talking about with hunting. This, this nonprofit for me was a personal, bit of a personal panacea to like, so I could, I could see it in people and I didn't have to always look at like the numbers, <laughs> like the views on a YouTube thing or the downloads on a podcast thing. Not that I'm not going to do that, but this helps me balance that and look people in the eye and go, we helped you. This helped you. This is real. And when I go on a show and talk the way I've been talking for the last little bit of time here, I can go back to it and go, yep, 
every day, every other day, I check in on the nonprofit and there's another person that has gone through this kind of stuff that I tend to preach about. And um, that's been helpful to kind of like to return to the personal side of it, that it does help people. And, you know, I, when I first met uh, this lady named Roberta, who was, who I mentioned that was helping, uh, was learning to hunt as a 40 some year old single mother, she came walking up this, uh, up to me in a bar in California. We were having like a little gathering of, of people on our nonprofit. She came walking up and I was like, she was like, is this the hunting mentorship thing? And I was like, yep, yep. Are you here with your husband or son? He's like, no, just me. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Uh, she shocked me, man. And then she was like, yep, I went to a butchering class. I've been listening to podcasts on YouTube and now I'm ready to do it. And I'm here. Let's go. What do you got for me? That is awesome. And, and I was like, oh, okay. Well, this is you know, I was kind of like the dog that caught the car. I really wanted this, but I didn't, didn't really know what to say or what to do with, with it. Um, but that this nonprofit has helped us kind of process that and say like, yes, this is what you do. And Roberta, since I met her at that bar has started her own within our nonprofit, her own women's group, where she's helping other women understand the challenges and understand what needs to happen on their end. And so, you know, that's, that's incredibly it's incredibly rewarding. And if it doesn't go anywhere past those couple of things, um, I'll, I, it will have helped me, but yeah. I think it can. I mean, I, I, I know it will. Well, it sounds like it could be a big deal for sure. And you're right. That is incredibly rewarding. Having people within your organization organized to help people. That's, that's pretty cool, man. Yeah, it's been, it's yeah. been, it's been cool. And it just reaffirms all the stuff we talked about at the beginning that not only, yeah, just not only is it, can I explain it now more better than I ever could before, but I can see it. So yeah. um, those two things together are, are really cool. Yep. Well, shoot, Ben, man, I really enjoyed my time talking to you. I know we, we spent a good amount of time here. I don't want to take any, I know you got more podcasts today to do, so I don't want to take any more. Yeah. Time. I'm on a podcast around today. Yeah. <laughs> unless you, unless one. you got some burning desires you want to share real quick, man, anything you want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> I want to kill an elk, man. <laughs> That's oh, man. my only burning desire right now. I, 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 I was going to cut my tag on that one I wounded, but I decided against it. Um, cause I, my wife was like, we need to meet, man. What are you doing? Like, <laughs> don't be too proud, you fool. <laughs> get the meat. So I'm looking forward to a lot of things, man, but I do, I do appreciate you, you thinking of me and having me on. And, and it's fun to, it's fun to talk with like-minded people about this stuff. It's, it's, uh, yeah. it's what I like to do. Absolutely, man. Well, guys, that was Ben O'Brien. And I hope you guys learned a lot because that was a lot in there and a lot to learn. Watch it. Listen to it. Watch it multiple times. This is the Western Obsessions TV podcast. Thanks for listening, guys. This is the Western Obsessions TV podcast, where hunting's not a hobby. It's an obsession. <laughs>